Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, we're going to learn how a young man took a love of nature and animals and turned it into a global empire of conservation and education. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is That Thing About the Human Nature Project. My guest today is Elliot Connor, an aspiring young conservationist, a photographer, and leader. He's passionate. He's a motivator and an advocate for change, working with organizations, spending local grassroots startup, and established international names. His life goal is to dispel some of the cognitive biases surrounding human natural superiority over other life forms and contribute to a thriving global community of nature lovers. He's a social entrepreneur, a podcast host, and the CEO of the Human Nature Project Charity. Thank you for joining the conversation, Elliot. Thank you, Michael. Looking forward to it. It should be really interesting. You have a, a unique journey for a young man of your age. <laughs> I certainly accelerated of late, uh, yes, since starting Human Nature Projects and uh, pursuing various other avenues. Uh, it's been uh, it's a wonderful journey for me over these past 12 months. So uh, really enjoying it and looking forward to seeing where it leads. I would say so. Yeah, for you're 17? Yes, shortly to be 18, but 17 for now. 18 is closing in. So you, you currently reside in Australia, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, living here in Sydney right now. How would you describe yourself? I describe myself as a uh, a leader of sorts. I enjoy taking on uh, that high level view. Uh, also, somewhat of a I'd like to say visionary, but without some of the uh, high brow connotations that carries. Uh, so, maybe a thought leader, as uh, someone who tries to uh, make processes efficient and reflective of their end goals. I enjoy. Uh, looking into the philosophy of how we go about doing things. So in my case, in conservation, uh, looking at some of the underlying processes that entails and trying to uh, make them much more reflective of what we now know about other animals and about our, our place within nature. So some of those really complex interactions we have to take in mind. That's really interesting. Have you lived in Australia all of your life? Most of my life. I uh, came over here when I was about four or five so I certainly considered myself to be Australian, uh, but carrying much of that British culture as well. Yeah, you so say you've got the, a British accent mixed with a little, <laughs> bit of, uh, <laughs> a little bit of Australian. My kid's godfather is from uh, London, so we're, okay. we're used to the British accent. Nice. Do you have any brothers or sisters? Any siblings? Yes, I've got an older brother and a younger sister. So three in the household, uh, which makes it very full, very busy. Uh, but it's a nice, a nice family the middle, to part of. And the middle child, we like to accept, excel. The middle child likes to uh, to move forward and kind of uh, in a new direction because you know you have to do, hmm. you have to keep up or overpass your older, and set an example for your younger. <laughs> Precisely. You kind of had a unique experience with a leopard when you were around ten years old. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so. At the time, I was camping with my family in the north of Botswana, a very remote campground, uh, no fences, no nothing. All the animals were walking through, uh, as is often the case over there. Uh, so uh, we were walking back from the camp toilet block, I believe, at the time. It was most of the family, I think four or five of us, uh, but I was lagging slightly behind. So I was sort of at that age. Uh, as you say, about 10 years old, 
uh, where you're starting to gain some independence uh, means uh, that you're starting to exercise some of that free will. So I was lagging slightly behind. I was appreciating the nightlife, appreciating the stars. And just as we reached the edge of our campground, so nearing that fire circle, I had this sort of sixth sense and I turned around and there about two metres behind me, I think, was a young leopard so crouched, stalking low to the ground. Uh, so that's one of those experiences you don't easily forget, so yeah, I would say. What was your first reaction? I mean, had you been around animals like that before? Had you been out in, in, in that area before in Africa? Yeah. So at the time, we were actually on a, a sort of sabbatical, a longer trip around Southern Africa, uh, well used to the animals. I wasn't particularly scared at the time. I think it's one of those moments where it's far more the adrenaline, the exhilaration of the moment. And in all honesty, I didn't need to be scared because leopards are ambush predators. Once it had been seen, it was no threat to me and shouldn't have been in either case. Unfortunately, it had been most likely habituated by previous campers, fed more equivalent, which meant it came to associate humans with food. And when you're a predator associating humans with food, that's not a great uh, <laughs> a psychology to have. So, yeah, I, I think at the time I looked into its eyes for a few very long seconds and uh, neither of us moved. I said something very understated, like, I think there's something behind me. Uh, so my brother turned round uh, with a powerful torch, caught the leopard full in its beam, and the leopard uh, slunk off. Uh, so it wasn't going to bother us again. Uh, but it did continue circling the campsite uh, for a few hours afterwards. Uh, it was a problem animal, unfortunately. And that was reported to the local authorities. So it was most likely relocated or shot, uh, which I think is a quite a sad reflection of where we're at in terms of our human relationship with animals. It was a, quite a pivotal early moment for me in coming uh, to some of those beliefs. Yeah, I can I can relate to one aspect of that. Um, I'm a retired law enforcement officer, and uh, I was in Col I live in Colorado, or had lived in Colorado. I don't live there any longer. I live in Arizona now. But while I was a police officer, we um, we had a problem where I worked with uh, bears coming down all the time and mountain lions. Yes, and um, that relationship between the bears and the mountain lions and how they became reliant upon people putting their trash cans out and how they unfortunately tied their dogs out front and these kind of things. So I'm with you there because I, I know that they had to relocate a couple of those animals and, and they had to dispatch a couple of those animals, which I, I'm an animal lover myself. That's why I'm, I'm honored to talk to you today because I think that the stuff that you've the, have accomplished, the things that you've accomplished are just amazing for your age and, and very beneficial to the, not just in your arena, but I think I think it spreads out to about a hundred different countries, doesn't it? Yeah, hundred five, hundred six, last count. I don't usually check, but thereabouts. Well, that's outstanding, actually. Is that where your passion, maybe for animals, came about, or for nature in general? Oh, certainly, uh, the upbringing was a major part of that. I mentioned earlier uh, the British background, so long walks in the countryside, some amateur bird watching. Uh, that's all very much a larger scene. Uh, over in the UK as opposed to here in Australia. I think if I just had uh, the Australian upbringing, uh, we've got some beautiful nature, but very few people understand or appreciate it. So uh, that was quite significant for me. 
Uh, in terms of where he took off from, uh, you're right, uh, some of the holidays, getting abroad to see animals was a big part of it, uh, but also seeing it just around Sydney, Sydney's beautiful green city. So uh, I spent six months actually uh, just taking every spare afternoon I could find to photograph some of the insects in my garden. Uh, so looking at the, the mini beasts down there, insects, spiders, uh, arthropods, and that was really interesting for me. So I had uh, an old DSLR camera with a macro lens on, which means I get proper close-ups, uh, but then posted those photos onto a citizen science platform called iNaturalist, uh, which sort of crowdsources the identifications. Uh, so I was then able to learn uh, what all these species were, some of their life stories, uh, which was really fascinating for myself. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah, it really is. How old were you? 14, late 14, 15 was when this really took off. Really, that, uh, honestly, um, I have to, I have to, I'm impressed with that. What do your parents do for a living? Uh, they both work in what was my dad's company in leadership coaching. Uh, so working with both corporates and charities uh, in this space to uh, coach uh, the leaders who work with their processes. So you get a little bit of training from home in actuality, which leads to what we're going to talk about here in a little while. Uh, yeah, I often get asked that, and it's hard to say uh, to what extent that happened. I'm sure I absorbed some of it. Uh, I don't often talk with them about their work, though. What gave you, like, your life path? How was it shaped by animals around you? I mean, not not every young man takes that direction. So help us understand how that came about. I think I was really fortunate, especially in those early days, to be able to have some incredible experiences, uh, but to build a connection to some of these animals in particular. Uh, so I've always kept various pets at home. I keep bearded dragons, which are sort of desert lizard uh, that we have here in Australia. I kept stick insects. I mentioned that time uh, when I was learning about the insects, the arthropods, and I I had a running, connect, a running collection of various mini beasts. I just kept in jars, terrariums on my desk here. So raised them through full life cycles. But I think that ability to really connect with those relationships with other animals was quite formative for me. And now I do animal rescuing. So I've got a ever-changing menagerie of animals out back, uh, injured animals, which we're rehabilitating. Uh, before release. Uh, so that's very rewarding work as well. I'm sure that kept you really busy with the fires, the devastating fires throughout Australia, didn't you? Uh, we're certainly uh, feeling some of the backlash. Uh, fortunately, much of Sydney, or certainly where I was, wasn't as affected. Uh, but it, it was a very interesting time to be working in that space. I know in those areas that were hit, it was quite a large workload, quite traumatic for many of the carers involved. But there's also the flip side to that as well. So I know the animal rescue I'm, organization I'm part of uh, received a tremendous amount of community support, uh, both funding and resources. Uh, there was this craze for hand knitting pouches and uh, animal uh, care equipment. So uh, that was incredible for me to see as well. That's, a, that's pretty cool, actually. Yeah, because you've been, because you, in your 17 years, I mean, again, I'm astounded by the amount of um, of things that you've accomplished. So, obviously, as much as you have accomplished in, in that time period, 
um, which everybody, um, we're going to give the web, your website here at the end of the podcast so everybody can go look and see what you've achieved. What kind of motivates you? What keeps you moving forward? I think it's two things. Uh, so uh, the first one, obviously, is the animals. I mentioned I've been incredibly fortunate with some of the experiences I've had connecting with other animals. And I'm very passionate about nature. That's why I got into this field. That's why I keep moving this conservation space. So that's a really obvious one. Uh, but the second is the, just the people I work with. And this is what has made Human Nature Projects uh, such an incredible experience for me, uh, starting up that charity and building this uh, global conservation community because I get to talk with people across uh, sometimes a dozen countries in a day, uh, speaking with some incredibly talented, passionate young leaders uh, with very diverse experiences, perspectives, uh, performing some incredible deeds in this space uh, through human nature projects and otherwise. Uh, so that definitely keeps me going, uh, being able to talk with them, share thoughts, share ideas, and uh, support each other on this journey. For the Human Nature Project, what gave you the idea to, to, to create such a huge global empire with, within that conservation aspect? Yeah, so at the time when I came up with some of the frameworks of that philosophy, I was actually volunteering in a uh, raptor, so a bird of prey, and hedgehog rehabilitation centre in southern France. Uh, so I was down there for about a month, uh, but <laughs> with a very limited internet, a uh, very limited connection to the outside world. Uh, so I spent some of that time, uh, especially uh, the long winter nights, especially uh, that downtime I had uh, between uh, sessions, uh, I was spending that researching uh, the operations of about 200 major environmental NGOs. Uh, so getting, I guess, the lay of the land, uh, because I had been doing some quite intensive uh, volunteering in the environmental space uh, locally prior to that, uh, but found it really challenging as a miner uh, and in Sydney, Australia, where uh, the environmental space is rather underdeveloped uh, to find some of these placements, uh, to find those opportunities to uh, get out into nature, to be part of the solution in protecting it. So, yeah, uh, that was really interesting for me. Uh, doing that research showed me, I guess, a bit of what was going on, uh, but it also showed me that my experiences were far from unique and that uh, this emerging uh, youth conservation environmental space as uh, really in its infant stages, especially uh, trying to build the linkages across its global scale and across generations as well. Uh, that's something which is very challenging to do, uh, but which Human Nature Projects was my solution to. They're doing that. Did, speaking of across generations, um, do you have any mentors that, that you follow or used as an example in, in all of your studies? Oh, certainly. I've been very lucky with some of the mentoring, some of the support I've received uh, from all sorts of sides over the years. So uh, half a dozen individuals have supported me in various ways, uh, authors, photographers, speakers, leaders, management executives. All of these have given me insight into some of the work they do. Uh, so that's something I've been uh, very fortunate uh, to receive, which has allowed me to be where I am uh, now speaking with you today and such. Uh, but 
I think it's really important uh, to, uh, to keep in perspective uh, the need uh, for the likes of myself to uh, learn from others more experienced. Uh, so I certainly something I recommend uh, to many of the other uh, people I speak to, uh, to uh, the young leaders especially. Uh, but it has been something which I've been very fortunate to receive and which I uh, try and uh, continue. So I mentor many others now as well. What are your thoughts on uh, like some of the icons of uh, conservation and education and preservation like Rattenborough and, and those individuals? I mean, those are the guys that I grew up with. Mm. Well, I didn't grow uh, up with in person, but, you know. I very much look up to David Attenborough, Jane Goodall, uh, all the likes, these few figureheads, I guess, of conservation. I think what they did in effectively founding, starting this uh, movement uh, is incredible. Uh, so David Attenborough is that popularizer, uh, Jane Goodall in changing our perspective of what it means to be human. So uh, debunking that myth of man, the toolmaker, uh, a few others. So Gerald Dull is a notable name in this uh, space when I, where I work, a uh, very renowned author. Uh, popularizer again of uh, caring for animals, uh, these new environmental uh, friends of mind. Uh, Lawrence Anthony is one less heard of, uh, but another person I look up to. Actually, at the moment, I'm reading the works of Francis Buckland. Uh, so he was of Darwin's era, but really interesting person as well. Uh, so I'm finding that fascinating. I think I've got That's a book pretty here. cool. Yeah, the book itself is 150 odd years old, but it's called Curiosities for Natural History. So perhaps not great for a podcast format, uh, but wow. uh, yeah, it looks proper antique and it's written from a different age. So really interesting to see how things have changed. That's amazing. The listeners out there, you couldn't see this book, but it actually looks like an antique. My, I grew up, my father was a journalist, so I respect I respect that. I grew up in a newsroom and I grew up with, with that. And I've got like books that are around a hundred years old, but nothing as impressive as the one you two showed me. So you, you founded the International Environmental NGO Human Nature Project. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about that and kind of what it does and how it incorporates into life? Sure, sure. So uh, the idea of Human Nature Projects is to create that entry point to environmental volunteering uh, to help the likes of myself and many, many other global citizens uh, to have that chance to give back to nature, to learn more about it and then uh, start working, protecting it. Uh, so the idea of how it's been set up, and you mentioned across so many different countries, the idea behind that is to localize some of the actions that we're taking, so make them relevant on that community scale. Uh, I think of it as scaling this grassroots impact, uh, grassroots momentum globally. Uh, so historically, environmentalism has been highly, highly localized. So it has been this grassroots uh, action, uh, these communities which have found a particular issue uh, in where they are in some of the natural processes taking place in their surrounds and they've acted on it uh, but human nature projects and uh, is taking that and putting it as part of a global context uh, so uh, that is really powerful i believe it's allowed us to scale so dramatically over the past 12 months as a charity uh, in terms of 
what uh, role it plays in my life in terms of how it fits in with everything. Obviously, I'm still schooling. I've got uh, still a few more weeks left of that journey. Uh, but uh, I have essentially been doing it as uh, the early mornings and the evenings. So fitting it in around the day job, uh, so to speak, uh, lots of midnight webinars, lots of late evening calls, early morning starts, uh, which <laughs> makes it substantially harder uh, to maintain. I'm looking forward to the gap year, uh, to taking some more time off, and devoting that to the charity, to other courses. Uh, but yeah, for the time being, uh, it's something which I've found I was able to run in that manner, uh, so which is very much self-sustaining. If, if you can please help us to understand a little bit, the when we talk about the human nature project, do, is it just dealing with animals or is it environmental as well? So the idea behind human nature, uh, which is this philosophy, this worldview uh, that the human nature projects promotes, uh, the idea behind it is to reframe our human relationship with the natural world. So if we can change how we as humans uh, view our animals and due to that, how we interact with them, how uh, we do or don't exploit uh, some of these natural processes, uh, how we then are able to conserve nature in various forms. Uh, so it's trying to work in that human element to what traditionally has been quite a narrow framing of environmentalism, uh, say, trying to boost species populations, conserving uh, genetic diversity, uh, promoting uh, habitat protection on these uh, tiny, tiny, minute uh, scales, uh, but trying to widen that, I guess, to the root cause of some of these issues. So looking at humans themselves, providing those uh, education opportunities, uh, that experiential learning, uh, so that humans can appreciate nature, respect nature, and that leads to us conserving nature. Uh, so it's all uh, interlinked in that way. Education is a key to understanding, and understanding is a key to empathy and compassion. Hopefully people will continue to follow through with that. You support how many volunteers across how many countries with this project? How many volunteers? A, a few thousand. Hard to put a number on it because it's always changing. Uh, but in that range, across about 105, 106 countries, closest guess. Uh, but that's where we're at about now. It's been a very rapid growth process for the charity. Have you picked these countries or did the countries come to you? No, the countries come to us. So often our volunteer will step forward saying they want to lead operation locally. So we call it a national team and we'll support them in that process. We've got onboarding. So we'll set them up as part of this global staff board and give them all the necessary support resources to allow them to forge that volunteer group. That's amazing. That's a lot of... Uh... That's a lot of managing, actually. So I, I'm sure you have a large team of individuals that helps you manage all this. Yeah, I've got a dozen other very passionate individuals on our global executive board. Uh, so they help me uh, with various bits and pieces along the way, uh, keeping those cogs whirring. Uh, but I think the beauty of how Human Nature Projects is set up uh, is uh, the volunteers, uh, these staff leaders we have, 
are very dedicated, very passionate. So uh, there's perhaps less uh, managing than you may expect uh, to be involved. Well, I think it's probably you're getting people that are actually interested in doing it. So I, that helps a lot, I'm sure. Of course. When you, yeah. Yeah. When you're interested in it and you want to do it, you just need guidance. Mm. That's, that's amazing. Do you operate? Are you operating in the United States? I think we've got a small team in the United States. I think I found it really difficult uh, from where I am uh, to connect with folks in the Americas. Uh, so that's going to be one of my Gampier projects. I think we need more human nature projects influence over uh, your side of the world. We're very strong in Africa, uh, some teams in Europe, in Asia. Uh, but as for the Americas, it's definitely a future stepping stone. That would be amazing. So you are an author as well, are you not? Yeah, I took uh, six weeks of lockdown here in Sydney to write my first book, which was a great experience for me, uh, just called Human Nature. Uh, but looking at this human relationship with nature, how it's changed over the years, and also where it's going. So really interesting uh, to try and project ahead as well. That's outstanding. Then that, is it about the project that you're doing now, or is it something just about nature in general? Uh, it takes a much wider scope. Uh, human Nature Projects does uh, have an early feature uh, looking at some of that philosophy, uh, but then trying to put it in this broader environmental context. Uh, so a lot more to do with the animals themselves and uh, some of how we humans have interacted with them and will continue to do so. You talk about reconnecting the family tree of life. That's a really profound statement. Well, I think it's important that we as humans recognize we are animals. Uh, we're part of uh, nature. We very much are significant in uh, many uh, natural processes. So we can't continue uh, this myth that we humans are superior, better than nature. Uh, apart from nature is the uh, worst one. Uh, so very much trying to dispel uh, some of those myths, some of that framing, uh, which has led to many of the inefficiencies we see in environmentalism today. Uh, we need to uh, work humans into nature, into these dialogues uh, much, much more. Uh, so that's where reconnecting the family tree of life comes in. Do you think it's really difficult, um, either in Australia or in the United Kingdom or anywhere in Europe? Is it, is it is it a, a difficult road to take in order to accomplish a lot of the conservatism? Conservation? I think it's a powerful role in terms of creating that change across uh, the whole environmental movement, so leading to that systems change. It can be uh, quite a major step uh, for especially the larger organizations, some of these more established bodies to take. Uh, they're often very set in their ways. Uh, I mean, I have worked with a few of them. I talk uh, I've spoken with many of their leaders in the past, uh, but yeah, it's, it's not easy. It's far from easy to change what has been done, what is being done uh, in this space. Obviously, environmentalism, it's constantly evolving. Uh, it's only 60, 70 years old as a movement. Uh, so trying to find uh, the best way forward is obviously a, a stretch of the imagination to uh, try and predict where we will be in another 50 years' time. Uh, but I think uh, that uh, this community level, this human nature, is a much, much more powerful way forward. Uh, so in terms of the adoption, I think that will follow. That would be 
amazing, actually. Unfortunately, you and I both know that mankind has taken a step backwards, unfortunately, and understanding that the planet needs to be taken care of and nature needs to be taken care of. And hopefully the powers that be will start recognizing that a little more. I think right now we're at this crisis of conscience. So uh, you're right. Uh, we've got a very different uh, relationship to nature than we have had previously. Uh, whether it's better or worse, it's very hard to say. Uh, so, I mean, Francis Buckland, I mentioned earlier, uh, some of his exploits, uh, he was an early uh, popularizer of nature, of natural history. Uh, but <laughs> he uh, he didn't have the best uh, personal relationship with nature. Uh, so... Charles Darwin famously uh, ate lots of animals. So he had that as one of his hobbies. Uh, Buckland, likewise, uh, Buckland kept two monkeys. And uh, when one of them died, he turned it into a tablecloth. Uh, so <laughs> these are things which wow. nowadays <laughs> would be very much frowned upon. Uh, but these were the early environmentalists, the early naturalists. Uh, so times have very much changed. And I think we're at that stage where we can uh, make sure it was a positive change, uh, where uh, we can solidify some of those learnings. Well, it's nice to have a, uh, a global voice like yours that's able to speak on behalf of nature. So you spent about five weeks in South Africa filming for the Wildlife or Wild Earth TV crew as an intern. You have a, you, um, I know you like photography, but do you like still photography or do you like carrying a camera, a movie camera, a film camera? Yeah, so my uh, background has been in wildlife photography. Uh, so stills photography, uh, very much uh, looking at capturing those portraits, stunning images, entering them into competitions and such, uh, something I still do. It's a very strong hobby of mine, uh, but I'd love uh, to uh, turn that more into a career in wildlife filmmaking. So that's where I've been headed, those are some of the steps I've been taking. So yes, I spent uh, the summer holidays with Wild Earth TV uh, in South Africa. And that was an amazing experience for me. Uh, they shoot uh, live footage from safaris, so six hours a day, and stream it to about a million monthly viewers, uh, which is wow. incredibly powerful as an education tool for uh, natural history. You have a clip on your website that people need to see because it is amazing photography. It really, it really presents it, you. It, basically, uh, I was in awe of of everything that I watched on that clip. It was um, wildlife in action. It was wildlife with compassion. It, it it's amazing. You guys got to see it. Everybody's got to see it. What's your vision for the future? In the future, I'd like uh, human nature, obviously, to be a factor. So I'd like us humans to integrate environmentalism into our development. Uh, if we can uh, try and tie in those two more closely, uh, that would be the ideal. I think under the status quo, uh, typically the two are at ends somewhat. Uh, so if we can end up with a model of sustainable development, development which is good for both humans and animals, uh, that'd be great. I'd like to see some more ambitious environmental goals as well. Uh, so we've got uh, projects like uh, the Half Earth Project, Nature Needs Half, uh, looking to protect uh, half of our lands and oceans by 2050. Uh, so much, much more wide-reaching 
uh, than uh, what we've done historically. We're currently at about 15% uh, thereabouts protected areas as percentage of global surface area. So uh, we definitely need a much more wide-reaching uh, change, uh, systemic change and change in terms of some of the deliverables uh, we make in environmentalism. Uh, so those two are really important. And the third one I'd love to see is just much better environmental education, a much higher environmental IQ. I think that's something which we genuinely have lost in terms of modern age, in terms of this modern era. Uh, whilst we uh, scientifically have advanced so far, uh, the public is lacking uh, substantially behind We've got that widening gap between uh, what the academic knowledge is and what uh, the general populace knows. And so that needs to be closed as well. I agree with that. Most kids these days have a view of wildlife in a zoo. And most of the zoos are, are not indicative of what the animal, how we're supposed to live, why it's supposed to live that way, what their environment is other than most of them, at least the ones that I've been to, are all cement walls and a few trees here and there, which isn't good. Here in Arizona, we've got the, um, they call it a wildlife safari, where the animals could pretty much get to roam. But it's only open certain times of the year because of the heat down here. Yeah. And because I live in the Phoenix area, and it's just kind of north of us. So when it's 110, 115, 120, they try to corral them all into a safe space so that they're not, you know, um, burning up in the heat, not, you know, getting heat exhaustion or anything. But it's an amazing opportunity for kids to go out and actually see them kind of wandering in the environment instead of in a, in a block. I think we do need more education, you know, with it. It, again, goes back to knowledge. I very much so. Yeah. So you talked about your mission to develop a model for mass individualism, empowering future leaders to find their potential and connecting the connectors and generating grassroots impact globally. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's uh, something which has only really come to the fore through uh, creating human nature projects, scaling that, uh, this mass individualism. Uh, so looking at what uh, skills, the background uh, that each of our volunteers brings to the team. And then tying that in to uh, this global network, to the national team, uh, to these larger collectives, uh, which can support and empower uh, the individual to uh, make the change they'd love to see in the world. Uh, I think that's been really powerful, uh, really interesting to see how that's developed uh, through the course of human nature projects. And I've seen it uh, slowly be adopted by other organizations I work in as well. So. Uh, that's something uh, which has been a major learning point for me. And I'm sort of the born introvert. I don't naturally take uh, to the people work. Uh, but I have found it really rewarding, really valuable as uh, that experience for myself as well. Well, luckily, it's a common interest, I think. I'm going to ask you a question before we wrap up here. You had stated that when asked what animal you would be if you could, and you said an elephant. Well, my wife loves elephants. So we watch every opportunity we can get there. They're absolutely magnificent animals. Why an elephant? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. And uh, you mentioned I spent five weeks in South Africa recently. So 
I got to see many elephants up close and personal, uh, right around the car, uh, just in their natural state of being. Uh, so that was quite uh, transformational for me, uh, seeing just how uh, complex, how social these creatures are, uh, some of the incredible family dynamics uh, that, they, that they have. And elephants are certainly within the top 10 of most intelligent species on Earth. Uh, they incredibly, incredibly uh, intelligent, uh, have this infrasound, this communication system that we're only beginning to decode. Uh, so potentially some uh, really interesting learnings there. I know when we uh, started learning about humpback whale uh, songs, uh, that communication, uh, that took the world by storm. Uh, so uh, I think elephants are one of those creatures uh, which certainly rival humans in interest and complexity. I think if I get inside one of their minds, that'd be fascinating. Well, and they're also very loyal and they're compassionate. And um, I think I've, I've seen some stories where they travel for miles to say goodbye to some another, another elephant and or somebody that had taken care of them for quite some time that had passed on. Oh, yeah, of course. I mentioned Lawrence Anthony earlier as one of my inspirations, uh, one of these environmental leaders. And what he did uh, was he took in a herd of elephants onto his game reserve. Uh, so this was a herd of elephants, a matriarch, which had been shot. Uh, so once that happens to a herd, it's incredibly traumatic. Uh, it effectively breaks up this uh, social group. Uh, so this was a problem herd of elephants, a rogue herd, uh, which was going to be culled, which was going to be shot. Uh, but he took them onto his game reserve. Uh, he, over many years, actually gained their loyalty after them escaping multiple times uh, from the high electric fences of the reserve, uh, causing endless damage, uh, property damage, uh, community damage, uh, staff uh, injuries even. Uh, but he slowly, slowly gained their trust. And uh, in the end, uh, they actually saved him from a wildfire. Uh, they became uh, very, very close himself and his herd. Uh, so I think that's an incredibly inspiring story. That's amazing. That really is amazing. Where can somebody find out more about you, your charity, and your projects? So I think the website will be linked in the show, but it's elliotconnor.com. Really simple. Uh, my charity's website is humannatureprojects.org. And you can head over to my podcast as well, which I've just started up. It's called Human Nature, a series two of which will be launching very, very shortly. Outstanding. And I will have links to all of those on the uh, show notes and on my website as well, before you go podcast.com. So this is one more thing before you go. So in that context, any words of wisdom? My words of wisdom would be go out there, do something. I think that's what I found uh, starting Human Nature Projects. I was very much a leap of faith for me. I couldn't have imagined where we'd be now. Uh, I couldn't have imagined creating anything like that sort of impact. Uh, so if you can believe in yourself, if you have this vision and can share it with others, uh, then that's what true leadership is. So go out there and do something. Amazing words of wisdom. Mr. Connor, thank you very much for sharing your journey with me and with my audience. I really appreciate it. And for what you've done, kudos. Well done, young man. Thank you, Michael. And thank you to the listeners. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. 
If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. That's BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.